Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Kara Fitzgerald. Uh, She's a medical director at the Sandy Hook Clinic. She's the host of New Frontiers in Functional Medicine and author of a book called Younger You. Uh, We're going to talk about epigenetics and what is an epigenetic AIDS and what factors affect it. So, Kara, thank you for coming. Yeah, it's nice to be here with you, Rich. Thanks for asking me to come on. Well, for people that don't know, what are epigenetics? Epigenetics is the science of the epigenome. So genetics is our genetic material. Epi is above. So it's all of the factors that influence what genes are on and what genes are off. This is really where the rubber meets the road. We thought really up until about the time that we characterized the human genome, mapped out the human genome, we really thought that we were at the behest of our genes. Our genes ran the show. It was nature that we really couldn't do much about our fate in life. If our parents died young, if our parents had diseases or our grandparents, that was our fate. But that understanding has radically changed. So we mapped out the genome. We realized that there wasn't this tight relationship, you know, one or two genes causing heart disease or diabetes or cancer, et cetera, that it was infinitely more complex than that. And we pivoted and turned our attention to studying what turns genes on and off. And it turns out that we have a lot of say over whether we're turning our best genes on, you know, or our worst genes on. I mean, this is where um, our diet, our lifestyle, our experience in life, our connection, our community, just really how we're living influences our health span and our lifespan. And I should say this is the field of epigenetics. So this is what it's interested in looking at. Okay. So when people speak about epigenetic marks, what are the different types of marks? You know, how does it happen? What does it do to the particular genes affected? So um, I there are about a hundred different biochemical changes to our genome that can happen, that can influence whether something, whether a gene is able to be turned on or able to be turned or or, or suppressed or inhibited. Even the way that the DNA is folded will influence and sort of wrapped up will influence whether a gene can be turned on or off. The area that I have put a lot of attention on and you know, is really one of the best researched areas is the, is called DNA methylation. And this methylation is a carbon and three hydrogens. Um, When a promoter region of a gene is heavily methylated, so there are many uh, of these methyl groups placed onto that area, uh, specifically at the cytosine when, when, when that base is next to a, a guanine. A lot of in the, and in the scientific literature, these these are denoted as red lollipops. So if you can just visualize a strand of DNA and you can see these red lollipops dotting a, a, a gene, that inhibits the gene from being turned on, generally speaking. It just blocks it. So transcription has to happen. A transcription factor will land on DNA and transcribe, you know, get the process of protein synthesis happening. 
And if there's these red lollipops are just obstructing that from from being able to happen. And but we can also remove them or there are genes that have few red lollipops and these genes can then be turned on. So lots going on in the world of epigenetics, lots of different biochemical changes, folding, et cetera, can influence whether a gene is on or off. But one of the best researched areas and arguably one of the most important epigenetic marks is something called DNA methylation. It's okay, also a quick question yeah. here. Um, let's say I have a stretch of, I don't know, a thousand base base pairs that would normally comprise a gene and methylation occurs at, you know, a couple different points along the thousand base pairs. And then there's a, you know, a necessary function in my body and that area attempts to be transcribed. Does it just kind of go over the red lollipops, like bumps in the road and <laughs> leave out question. certain parts? of it or, or what does it do is ignore the whole area you know i my understanding that's a great question and it's 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 not that's not in my my area of expertise i'll i'll admit i haven't studied it that granularly we can talk about what my research focus is but it sure. it seems to me that you know it's the density of those red lollipops that will inhibit transcription from happening and that few red lollipops so the presence of some shouldn't completely inhibit it so i would i would say that that gene will be turned on and transcribed and no it should be fully and normally transcribed even even with a few hangers on yeah and it's okay i don't know if anyone knows this sometimes i tend to ask weird questions but um yeah, that's I I, nobody's that. ever asked me that question. It's a it's a t- entirely reasonable question, though. <laughs> but it's not out. It's not okay. within my it's not within my area of expertise. Somebody who's really in the laboratory, actually doing the you know the 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 analytical investigation, would be the one to ask. Right, okay. Uh, what about the mechanism of methylation? Like, um, how does it happen? Let's say tomorrow I start smoking cigarettes. You know, I'm going to experience a whole bunch of epigenetic changes, but like. How do yeah. they happen? Has anyone been able to trace the path from, um, you know, different behavior or different stimulus to the organism? You know, like let's say start smoking and methylation and other other effects of epigenetic change. God, that's another great question. So, my understanding with the influence of toxins is that it tends to cause just aberrant DNA methylation patterns. Like, just you know, think, yeah. Uh, is sort of the willy-nilly breakdown of proteins and increased oxidation. Um, there is some evidence that it can inhibit methylation from happening, but and that makes more sense that there, you know, that there would be damage to the methyltransferase enzymes from actually laying down methyl donors, et cetera, and maybe in, and there's direct damage to the DNA itself um, in smoking or other toxin exposures. So I would say that that it would have an inhibitory effect, but I don't, but that's not entirely true. Yeah. I think that, I think that there's just, there's, there's, there's an, there's an imbalance. There's an imbalance that's happening. That's probably relatively uncontrolled. What are some questions that you're pursuing right now with your research? So our research is looking at diet and lifestyle influence on the epigenome, not quite as granular as your tendency is to get, which I, you know, I appreciate it. And I, I do find it interesting, but ours are more uh, looking at, uh, well, specifically our first, uh, actually I'll even, I'll back up before this. I became interested. I'm a clinician. I do have a background in laboratory science, but I'm a, primarily in practice working with other, you know, working with humans. And the literature on epigenetics was really coming across my desk quite heavily. I want to say around 2013 or so. Um, and it was looking at specifically cancer 
And cancer very efficiently, the tumor microenvironment very efficiently hijacks gene expression from us um, and turns on genes it wants, you know, to propagate the tumor and inhibits genes that, you know, protect us from cancer. So the tumor and microenvironment does this. And specifically, most of the science here is looking at DNA methylation again you know, for various, it's a resilient, this is, it's a resilient epigenetic mark. It can be transcribed from, can be maintained. The epigenetic, the epigenetic patterns of DNA methylation can be maintained between cell divisions. It can, they can also be heritable. So some of these patterns we can hand on. So, so cancer, so the research has really focused on DNA methylation and the tumor microenvironment takes it over hypermethylating genes it wants off and hypomethylating genes, turning genes on that it wants on. And my question as a doctor was, are we influencing this? Are we influencing it favorably? We know that we can influence really pretty powerfully with our limited analysis. We know that we can influence methylation. Uh, I'm sure that you're familiar with homocysteine. Homocysteine elevates and it's associated with cardiovascular disease and some neurodegenerative diseases and so forth. But it also sits at the heart of the methylation cycle where we make that red lollipop, that carbon with three hydrogens. And so we know that we can change the behavior of the methylation cycle profoundly by giving B12 and folate, betaine, choline, et cetera. We can make a big difference in what's happening. And there's also, there's also evidence that these supplements and can influence what's happening at the methylome or the DNA methylation. So would it, for me, the question became, if I'm prescribing B vitamins, really this simply if somebody has cancer or is in a precancerous process, would I could I possibly be promoting hypermethylation, you know, of a gene that we don't want turned off? And could I be pushing cancer forward? So that became my fundamental question back in 2013. And it led to us creating a diet and lifestyle program, the diet being very dense with a lot of methyl donors, because we know we need to be able to make those red lollipops, but also a lot of nutrients that have some suggestion in the literature as being able to control where methylation happens or support where it happens. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. These things are primarily polyphenols like curcumin and turmeric or EGCG and green tea, luteolin, quercetin, et cetera. These seem to be to potentially have an influence on traffic directing. And I will, in full disclosure, say a lot of this literature is in vitro. There are some animal studies, but we also know that these nutrients have a long, 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 long use history across many medical traditions. And, and we also know that there's already evidence that they're you know, anti-inflammatory, anti-tumorigenic, and so forth. So we packed the diet with methyl donors 
and what we're calling these methylation adaptogens or these polyphenols. And then we looked further in the literature for evidence for influence on the on DNA methylation or favorable influence on DNA methylation. And we found that in the form of exercise, meditation, we found negative influences profoundly with stress. And so we put together this program that we thought would best massage DNA methylation, and we started to use it in practice. And I would, I, I lecture to other professionals, so I started to present on this more broadly to my, some of my colleagues in about 2016. And we wanted to research it, though. You know, that was the thing, Rich. You can't send, you can't create a lab slip and send somebody off to Quest or LabCorp for a methylation. Well, you know. Yeah, that's that's what I was just about to ask you: is are yes. there are there even any? Like, how do you know someone's epigenetics are even in play or being affected? Yes, is there a clinical exactly. test you can do? <laughs> Exactly. Not, no, not in the clinical setting. Could, could we at that time send somebody off to Quest? I mean, we still can't actually. So by, you know, just by grace, we were, and we really wanted to answer this question. So to your point, are we actually influencing epigenetic expression? Are we doing anything to DNA methylation? We think we are. We've built this program brick by brick, and we think we're influencing it, but we really don't know. And we, so we tossed around how we might conduct a study. We can measure homocysteine. We can certainly dance around various methylation markers. You know, you can measure the red lollipop itself as adenosylmethionine is, is available. But to look at the methylome, no, that was not available at the time of, of uh, that I'm speaking to you on it, it, readily. It was just not available, only in the research setting. And I was given- well, remember, a- um, yeah, how, how does it happen? Like, remember the case of the two astronauts, they Yes. You know, one guy was in space for a year, he came back, they said, oh, hundreds of epigenetic yes. changes. Massive. How do they know? How do they because, evaluate that? Because in the research setting, indeed, there are, ext- you can measure the entire methylome. And now it is more available outside of the research setting. There are more, there's actually one lab that I'm working with now that it, that's outside of the research setting. So we were given a grant. We were able to hire a clinical research center to, and, you know, pay, buy the, the test, the, the, the arrays to measure the full methylome. And we conducted a randomized control trial. And we started that in late, late 2017 and finished in late 2019, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we published our first study in 2021. So we were able to actually test and look at whether or not we were influencing what was going on with those red lollipops. The reason that I wrote a book called Younger You is because it turns out that biological age is actually measured by looking at patterns of red lollipops. At the time that we started our study, there were no studies conducted in humans demonstrating change to biological age. The first clock wasn't actually even created until 2013. So when we set out to, to, when we developed our program, we weren't thinking that this was going to influence biological age. I think, you know, maybe some distant ponderance, but it wasn't demonstrated in in humans. We were originally concerned about cancer and other chronic diseases where you can see real profound damage and change to the methylome, but aging. So I, I was aware that aging itself is associated with damage to the methylome that actually looks like the chronic diseases of aging. So if you sort of laid down what the methylomes look like in these various conditions, in these various conditions, aging actually looks like sort of a diseased methylome. So there was some suggestion we might be making a difference, but it wasn't until 2019. So we, our study was well underway that the first study in humans to demonstrate biological age reversal as measured by, you know, DNA methylation 
bioclocks was 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 conducted. Um, and so our, one of the first questions we wanted to answer as we finished our study was, you know, have we influenced bioage as compared to our control group? The study participants got you know a little over three years younger within that the eight weeks time of our how do, study. How do you measure that though? What, what yeah, kind again, of uh, KPIs? You're, you're looking at red lollipops, so you're looking at the methylome. You're looking at a particular pattern of of red lollipops. There's multiple well, biological. Right, so one one second. So have you ever seen a uh, like a report on the methylome? Even like you know, if you looked online, or what, like what does the report look like? Does it count the that's such a, that's a funny or the question. number or yeah well you just you, yeah there's it's just hundreds and thousands of 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 you know numbers and density of it's just it's just a spreadsheet of numerical values and you know there's a pattern analysis around changes to the yeah to the density of the red lollipops in a given region okay is, and you can't do and you, for, you can you can actually so there are some some analytical tools where you can look at sort of a colometric change. You know, so you can look at a, since cancer does take over DNA methylation extraordinarily efficiently, you can look at different cancer cells and you can look at non-cancerous cells and you can see, you know, a massive burden of methylation, in the, you know, in the cancer cells as compared to normal cells. Do you think your, your diet protocol um, causes demethylation to occur? And if so, how does that happen? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think so. So the other piece is that we we could see that we changed. So, so moving away just from 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 the clocks, we could see that we changed DNA methylation, you know, much more broadly in our participants as compared to the as, as compared to themselves at baseline. So we really did shift around what was happening. Demethylation happens via a few different mechanisms. Um, you can inhibit methylation from happening. So you can inhibit the DNA methyltransferase enzymes from laying the red lollipop down, but you can also remove the red lollipops through active demethylation. So there's passive demethylation, which would be an inhibition and then active, which is actually, you know, plucking it off. Uh, Yes. I, I, I do think that we influenced methylation and demethylation because we very clearly rearranged. So we so so the net methylation quantity of methylation in our study participants was not greater than the controls, but we rearranged what was happening. So, you know, clearly we did some demethylation and some methylation. Hmm, okay. Um, so how did you determine uh, you know imputed biological age? What did that look like, that heuristic? Well, we we used the Horvath clock. In our study, um, we used saliva, so it was the first biological age clock that was developed in 2013 by Steve Horbath um, and he, out of UCLA. And there's 353 CPG sites, so there's 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 353 areas on the genome that they're looking that that he's looking at that are that can accurately that very tightly correlate with chronological age. So the very first clock was trained against chronological age in utero, so a negative uh, chronological age to, you know, centenarians, and these 353 sites of potential methylation, CPG sites that are referred to as, um, form the uh, first Horvath clock. There are different clocks. There's second and third generation clocks. They've become more sophisticated, actually, really rapidly. But at the time of our study, the Horvath clock was what was available to us, um, and particularly for the fact that we chose saliva as a sample 
not knowing that blood would become the sample of choice for these investigations. So, yeah, what is this? Training. What does this clock show? The Horvath clock. What, what, what does it well, count down or tell you? It's it's so so it was trained as I said against um, chronological age, and it you know it correlates you know closely almost you know one to one correlation. It's about a 0.96 correlation with um, chronological age, so more rigorous than any other uh, measure. You know, telomeres being a distant second. Um, but interestingly enough, the patterns are more predictive of morbidity and mortality. So even though it closely shadows chronological age, it's actually a better predictor of health and lifespan than is chronological age. Hmm, okay. Um, I mean, how longitudinal does a study like this have to be? If you say, all right, according to this clock, you're, you know, you're 35 and, and you came in here, you're 40, now you're a bio logically younger. Well, again, how much of a longitudinal uh, look do you need to, to see, yes, this makes sense, or the clock is junk, or does it work? You know, how do we know? Well, I mean, he trained his data on massive, massive data sets of people, you know, at a, at a, you know, from negative to centenarians. I mean, I think what you're asking me is, you know, this is a surrogate marker of health span and lifespan. You know, is it, you know, we have to accept that it appears that it could be. We're not going to have longitudinal data anytime soon with humans because we live too long. Right. Are so, there milestones on the Horvath clock? Like, you know, once you get to a certain thing, age, and you tend to see X, Y, Z, or, you know, what yeah, does the sure. clock yeah, yeah, look yeah, like? Yeah, 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 it's like? entirely, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if there weren't clear changes, it, it wouldn't correlate so closely with health span and lifespan and chronological age. So yes, there's very there's very clear changes that happen across the course of our lives with regard to the epigenome. Yeah. Big time. I mean, really quite predictable. And we know that we see these changes, you know, we see like, as I started the conversation out, like the aging journey, like if you look at the methylome of somebody who's older, you know, that's their only crime, you're going to see changes reflective the methylomes of, of, you know, individuals with certain chronic diseases. So aging itself is the biggest risk factor for the chronic diseases that we face, you know, massive, you know, much more so than, I mean, if you look at lung cancer, aging far outweighs smoking as a risk factor, but because there's, there's these, there's these predictable changes that happen to the methylome and, and Steve Horvath and others have started to perceive some of these. Has anyone, you know, like tying, dovetailing into what you're doing, um, if someone has cancer and they have a you know a solid tumor of a certain size and shape, um, have have you had people go through your protocol and see if the tumors let's say decrease in size and scope? You know, I know you probably have an underlying standard of care going along and at the same time, you know, chemo, surgery, et cetera. But is there any way for you to do research like that? Would that be useful? You know, I would love to. I mean, we certainly know so that so very classically in cancer as well as aging are all important tumor situations suppressor genes are hypermethylated and inhibited. So these are, there's many, we have many, many tumor suppressor genes uh, and we start to shut them down. We aggressively shut them down in cancer and, you know, we just shut them down as we age. And this is certainly a factor in why, you know, we increase our risk for cancer as we age. Um, I know that our study turned back on certain tumor suppressor genes. I can see that in our data and it's, um, you know, I want to, I want to explore we actually turned on quite a few genes in our study, and that's something that I'd like to explore and write about. I think it's a, 
an important publication to show what diet and lifestyle intervention can do in a relatively short period of time. I haven't studied using this program. I, I you know, have a number of different researchers have reached out to me and, and an oncology researcher out of, I think it was University of Texas, pinged me and I would love to do a collaboration. You know, I would, I would absolutely love to do a collaboration in, you know, in conjunction with standard of care. Um, you know, they're doing Which science. They're, yeah. They're, I mean, yeah, yeah, here I'm in Connecticut and they're, and they're looking at nutrition and breast cancer. And I think that this would really be an awesome collaboration if they were interested, I'd love to do it. So I know we're changing. Yeah, how much of a, oh, good. I'm sorry. Please. I, I mean, I just, I mean, so I know we're making I know we're influencing it. And, and this diet, the dietary pattern, I mean, certainly very healthy by any measure, um, but it's very laden in what we call epinutrients. These, these nutrients that have some evidence for influencing the methylome. And so I, I would, I would love to see it, you know, used in certain protocols and we use it here in clinic practice all the time and see great outcome. But, you know, obviously that's considered to be anecdotal. Yeah. I just thought of a terrible joke. If you smoke, you know, uh, certain cigarettes, you'll have a mentholome. Anyway, bad joke. <laughs> um, what, what's the biggest delta that you've seen, you know, on the Horvath clock? Have you been able to tell someone, oh, you were, you know, 50 essentially, and now you're 30, you know, can you get 20 <laughs> years or two years? So what's the biggest you've seen? Well, I mean, there's definitely, I was just looking at it, at it, at a data set, we're going to, we're going to publish a little case series. Like we finished our study and we have IRB to continue to research it, but we're still building out that program, but we do, we can do some preliminary sort of case reporting. And I'd like to do that. And I just, I was looking at our data and I can see one person reverse their bio age by 11 years. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <that's> excellent. <laughs> yeah. It, it is pretty cool. It is. I know this would probably be really tough, but you know, let's say someone recently, all of a sudden they have more gray hair than they did before and they go through your protocol. I, I mean, what I'm saying is, have you seen visible changes on people that have gone through your protocol? You know, in addition to the, the testing and all that, for the things we can't see, is there anything you can see and can observe? Definitely haven't reversed gray hair. Although I will say that there was a a report in another much longer study. I mean, where our intervention was only eight weeks. It's an extremely short period of time, but another year-long intervention using growth hormone uh, and a few other things. Apparently, somebody did reverse their gray hair. At least that's what I hear reported. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Yeah, you know, in functional medicine, we see people get younger before our eyes all of the time. You know, so you see people's skin improve and get clearer. You're, you see their body habitus change. You know, you see more muscle mass. You know, so we see these things in practice and. Yeah, you know, you you can absolutely witness those favorable changes. A lot of the early adopters of my program are, you know, biohackers. And I can say actually on a lot of them start biologically younger than their chronological age. You know, they're already really, really healthy. And in and in our study, our participants were healthy. You know, we only wanted to investigate a healthy methylone. We wanted to sort of isolate aging as the as the variable that we were investigating changing the methylome. So we didn't want people with any chronic illness in our study. People who have chronic illness are aging faster. I mean, that's, that's been really clearly demonstrated. For, for example, diabetics tend to be six to nine years older than their chronological age. Biologically, they tend to be. So you can imagine if somebody comes to us with a, a medical condition, as we reverse bio-age, you're going to see their phenotype. You know, you're going to see their physical 
also begin to reflect some of that. But some of the he very healthy biohackers, we don't we don't see as much of a turnaround. Well, you know, you mentioned like eight weeks is a very short period of time. But what I was thinking with my question is things that have happened to a person very recently that are not kind of baked in for long versus long-term chronic problems they've had. Do you see much of a difference in effect? Like if someone, you know, just six oh, months ago, they were it. told they had diabetes versus 10 yeah. years ago. You know, it's funny. I'm just trying to pull from my head a study I was recently reading. You know, acute stress can be very pro-aging and resolution of that stress is, can be, is anti-aging. And that can be, that can be a quick turnaround. So, um, yeah, I mean, you could see things, you could see things change relatively quickly. Does that answer your question? That was just a study. That, 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 yeah. that investigation was just published on actually recently. They were looking at like, uh, oh, okay. they were looking at, they were, they were actually looking at emergency surgery and, you know, the aging of that surgical, of the experience, you know, the trauma of surgery. And then, you know, bioage pops back as the healing, as the healing process takes place. So there's a pro yeah, like a phenomenon. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine's a, a chiropractor and patients will say to him like, you know, hey, hey, doc, how long do you could fix my back? And he's like, well, how long has it been hurting you? Some people will say like 10 years. He goes, well, uh, if it's been 10 years, it's probably going to take more than a couple of visits to fix it, as opposed to someone where it just started hurting. You know, it, I would think mm -hmm, mm -hmm. probably a lot of conditions are like this. The longer you've had them, the yes. longer the stress, uh, the harder it is to undo and the longer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would say that that's generally a rule of thumb. Not always, but you know, you can turn things around. I had, I've, I've had multiple patients with chronic migraine. I had a patient with a 30 year migraine history and, um, you know, we turned it around in probably, I don't know, two months, maybe three months. And that was because she was, you know, she had some clear food intolerances. And when we identified them and pulled them out, you know, she was, her, her headaches resolved. I mean, you can see stuff turn around pretty darn quickly. And it's also fair to say that, you know, problems can be more entrenched the longer they've been around. Okay. Well, tell me about uh, your book. I would book. say though, you know what, to that okay. point, if you've got a newly diagnosed problem, they're not, the damage is not as, as severe as somebody. Yeah. So we would expect that you could turn that around quick, quickly. So a, they probably wouldn't be as biologically old as somebody with the same problem times, you know, a couple decades and B yes, you'd be able to turn it around more quickly. I think that that's fair. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Uh, how about your book? Let's restate the title and uh, tell me what that's about. So the title of the book is called Younger You, Reduce Your Bioage, Live Longer and Better. And it's really about what we've been talking about. So it's, it's the study laid out. Um, so anybody who wanted to do exactly what our study participants did, eat what they ate, exercised like they did. We wanted them to sleep. We wanted them to take a probiotic and some greens powder, some extra fruit and vegetables. Um, we wanted them to engage in a meditation practice. So exactly what our study participants did, it's outlined in the book. Also, it's just a really good survey of epigenetics, why it's important, you know, the various biological clocks that we used. And, 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 epi, and to your point, epigenetics through the lifespan and those predictable changes that happen. I think that's extraordinarily interesting. And I actually, you know, it, like aging is very epigenetically active, only it's a time of really kind of breakdown happening. Um, whereas infancy and embryogenesis are, you know, equally embryogenesis is more epigenetically active. Uh, it's huge. Like we're defining pluripotent stem cells, you know, to 
various somatic cell types. And we're doing that via methylation and demethylation and other epigenetic marks in early infancy where we're developing, you know, at this rapidly breakneck pace, methylation and epigenetics in general is just aggressively occurring. And I, I, you know, I argue in my book that there's no time that we don't want to be thinking about engaging in, you know, diet and lifestyle practices that support the best expression of our genome. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Any interesting commentary you've gotten from the book from readers? Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, I, it's been, it's been well received in my experience so far. I, my colleagues um, in the functional medicine space, um, David Perlmutter and Mark Hyman, Sarah Gottfried, Terry Walls. Oh, you know, my, my colleagues have really been excited about this and very supportive. And, and I think, you know, Jeff Bland, actually my, my mentor in functional medicine, he, he, gave me an award actually mid midway through our research in, you know, just the fact that I was the first person to say, Hey, let's look at epigenetic expression using, um, you know, basically a functional medicine intervention. Um, it hadn't been done before. Like this was a brand spanking new study and certainly not a, you know, a controlled trial. So my, certainly my colleagues have been just extraordinarily excited about this. Dale Bredesen, his work in Alzheimer patients, again, just really exciting. And, it's changed our field in that anybody conducting research, you know, will be looking at the methylome to see what's happening. And I just, I, I couldn't be happier. You know, likewise, my patients and then just regular folks who are reading the book, um, I've received some really lovely feed. You know, I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, we can really make a difference in our health span, in our lifespan. We can influence what genes are on and off. I think it's a hugely important message and one that really yeah. needs to be shouted from the, the rooftops. Um, I, I've gotten a lot of feedback, actually, Richard, as I'm, as I'm saying this, just about an appreciation for that fact. So it's not just another diet book because, you know, we're changing gene expression and let's look at the science for what we're doing. I think it, it certainly brings a new appreciation towards, you know, engaging in good self-care. Yeah, definitely. Um... Is anyone looking at uh, the effect of localized microbiome on epigenetics? Like, How much do you imagine the epigenetics of a given cell population is influenced by its localized microbiome? <laughs> what do you mean it's localized microbiome? Are you talking about like a colonocyte and, and, and what it might be doing based on the, 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 the acromancia hanging out in the mucin nearby? Is that what you're yeah, asking well, me? Yeah, be, yeah like I, I interviewed a scientist named Florencia McAllister. I refer to her often. She was studying pancreatic, um, pancreatic cancer. So they, they found that the pancreatic tumors had a different microbiome than the rest of the pancreas, the healthy tissue. So it looks like based on the condition of any given cell, it will have its own localized microbiome, you know, microbes hanging out around it, literally locally. Mm-hmm. So when you look at tumors, they're heterogeneous. So I would guess you'd see like an incredibly heterogeneous microbiome around each of the cells. But I wonder how much microbiome changes cause epigenetic change. I don't know That's, if anyone's looking at that. Yeah, no, not to my knowledge. I mean, the microbiome totally influences what's happening epigenetically. There is no doubt. I mean, I think broadly we can say that. But in terms of how that microbiome environment, I mean, you're the colleague, the, the, the woman that you just interviewed, she'd be best suited to look at that. So she's identified the microbiome. She could manipulate and she could measure, you know, what, what's happening with regard to methylation in that, you know, in those particular cells that house that 
particular microbiome, and then she could change that microbiome and then, you know, measure the methylome again. She'd actually be best suited to, to do that investigation. It would be interesting. I mean, I'm sure there, I'm sh- there's no doubt. I'm sure they're influencing it. I mean, I, I shouldn't say there's no doubt, but it seems to me that that would be something that could be uh, identified. You could at least yeah, establish I just wonder an if association. It's a, yeah, I wonder if it, if it could be a major influence or a minor one, or is this the leading way in which epigenetic cascades start and then diet is secondary? I don't know. You know, I mean, who knows? But that's why I was asking. I think diet's an, a potent influencer, but I also know that the lack of exercise, I mean, you know, going back to the tumor suppressor genes, which I find extremely interesting because diet can support turning them on and, you know, likely diet shuts them off as well. But I, I, my, my understanding or my, my knowledge goes more towards, you know, what's allowing for re-expression. So we know these polyphenols will turn on previously suppressed tumor suppressor genes. Exercise does the same thing. So our lifestyle, but whereas toxins will, you know, do the exact opposite in some cases. Um, so we know these guys are, are influential, but yeah, you know, what's the, what the, is the, the microbiome is, is likely playing a pretty key role. Is it in response to the dietary and lifestyle inf- inputs? My guess would be yes, but you know, is that, is it only in response, you know, or is there something else going on? Yeah. I know it's, again, it's an unanswerable question right now. It's just something that came to mind. I just wanted to see if you thought about it, you know? No, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I definitely think more broadly about the microbiome for sure, <laughs> but not, not quite as, as granular as you're thinking about it. <laughs> oh, no worries. Okay. So what are, what are you working on right now? Like looking forward over the next couple of years, what's the, uh, the thrust of your research? What do you want to figure out? Well, the two big questions that I want to answer, I want to just continue. So our first study was a pilot study. We need to gather more data on our intervention. So that's what I want to keep doing. But I also want to look at how people might respond to an individualized program. So the cornerstone interventions are in there, but we can individualize them to the person um, working with us. And then I also want to look at, so those tumor suppressor genes, are we able to influence them? There's actually quite a few. I'd like to look and see what diet and lifestyle, uh, how diet and lifestyle can influence the the methylome more broadly in a favorable way. And for example, we know that PTSD, depression, various depressions, anxiety, um, all of these can uh, be accompanied or are accompanied by differential methylation patterns. And can we influence that favorably? So classically, in a number of different mental health conditions, you can see hypermethylation of oxytocin receptors. And I'm sure that you know oxytocin is considered the love hormone. It's what helps us to you know, feel connected and to, to be able to connect. It's motivating. It's you know, it's the experience of love. It's lowers blood pressure. It's associated with longevity. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on, but hypermethylation of oxytocin of the oxytocin receptor can be obviously really problematic. And it's core and it's correlated with to some of these conditions. Can, can we influence that? You know, I would love, I, that's an area that I want to look at. Can we influence, you know, other, other genes that are, or other hypermethylation patterns um, that are associated with some of the some of the conditions that that we're seeing in in practice. I mean, are we able to do it? And to what extent and how long does it take? I think all of those those questions are very interesting. So biological age is a big one. It's a huge one for me. But beyond that, 
you know, more focused look at changing methylation patterns. It's just is fascinating to me. We know that we can inhi- we can inherit methylation patterns uh, associated with 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 past trauma. I mean, we've and and this can be reflected in outcome uh, again associated with mental health issues like depression, increased anxiety, and so forth. But also, the chronic diseases um, can be associated with inherited changes to the methylome stress-induced inherited changes. So generation one went through some kind of a trauma. It's been looked at in Holocaust um, offspring, uh, generational offspring. And it's yeah, like the Dutch at, hunger winter. Yeah. Dutch, yeah, well, that was more, yeah, Dutch hunger winter is a good example. Now, uh, 9-11, you can see offspring have different methylomes. And it's just fast. It would be fascinating to me to see whether or not we can influence beneficially using a diet and lifestyle intervention to some of those, some of those patterns. Yeah. Has anyone been able to characterize what is a healthy methylation versus an unhealthy one? And again, the drivers of it, has anyone looked at like extracellular vesicles as being a, you know, a large <laughs> contributor to it versus again, microbiome? That is so interesting. That is so, I don't know. <laughs> extracellular vesicles. That's awesome. I, yeah, I don't know, but we do. Yeah, I think we do. Well, we certainly know what a young, a youthful methylome looks like. We know what an, what an aged methylome looks like. We know, you know, we know that when we reverse, I mean, in animal studies, you can reverse an aged methylome and radically, you know, and make mice younger. I mean, it's pretty darn extraordinary. There is a, a mouse model they created it actually out of David Sinclair's lab in Harvard, a really interesting study. They, they looked at a age-related optic neuropathy. Actually, they induced an age-related optic neuropathy in mice. And they were blind. The mice were blind. And they were able to reverse that by addressing methylation and demethylation and probably other epigenetic marks as well using something called Yamanaka factors. So they used these specific transcription factors and made the optic neurons younger in this mouse model of age-related optic neuropathy. So the mice were able to see again when they tested the biological age of those optic neurons, they were also youthful. And then they did this to mice in general. So they aged mice forward by damaging the epigenome and then reversed, you know, reversed the, um, the age of the mice, but the biological age of the mice, again, by changing and restoring um, optimal epigenetic expression. They did this in skin cells as well. So they took older human skin cells and made them about 20 years younger. Oh, wow. That's very cool. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's really amazing, amazing research in this area right now. A lot. It's very so, interesting and exciting. So well, I guess to, so, your, to your yeah. point, you know, we do, we have an idea of what a, you know, an older, what an optimal methylome or youthful methylome looks like, what an aged methylome looks like, what different disease states kind of present like on the methylome. So yeah, there's, there is that, that information out there. Okay, well, very good. So, Kara, um, for listeners, some resources. So, your book, Younger You, it's available, I would guess, Amazon and wherever books are sold, right? Uh huh. It sure is. And I have a, a website, drkarafitzgerald.com, that people can come and visit if they want to, you know, see more about what I'm doing and what we're doing here in my clinic. And I, I have a podcast as well, and uh, we write blogs. We do lots of stuff over there. Uh, so, drkarafitzgerald.com, they can find me, they can find this book. In November, we will have a cookbook, an accompanying cookbook out. It's a better broths and healing tonic. So it's kind of a cool way to get your epinutrients 
So you can keep an eye out for that if that interests you. So drkarafitzgerald.com is is the easiest way, I think, to find me. Okay, and it's Kara with a K, right? That's right. Okay, very good. Well, Kara, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, you're welcome, Rich. Thanks for those. Thanks for those really interesting and very unique questions. <laughs> I appreciate oh, no it. no problem. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.